on Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. And I'm your producer, Jenny Fan. And you can see our faces. Hey. <laughs> this is part of a special video series. So to see more, subscribe to Untextbook on YouTube so you don't miss the next amazing episodes we have coming up. Jenny, let us know what this series is all about. Absolutely, Gabe. We're calling this Untextbooking the Museum Collections. We met with some amazing people from the Smithsonian to dig into what makes United States history, history. Cool. With this new series, just as we've taken the history out of the textbook and made it more lively, engaging, and accessible for younger audience, we hope to extend that same accessibility through these curated conversations. A group of us actually flew down to Washington, D.C. to visit the Smithsonian, which is actually the world's largest museum complex of 21 museums, the National Zoo, and research facilities. Okay, incredible. What did you learn? Well, a handful of curators welcomed us into the collections to look around a little bit. We spoke with them to understand how they design exhibits and even how they acquire items that get woven into the fabric of U.S. history, or at least how it's remembered. Wow. Interesting. Like, great imagery here. Like, who, who told you this? Who did you talk to? I met with curator Dr. Catherine Ott. She primarily focuses on medical history. You know, as someone who's passionate about health optimization, this is right up my alley. Tell me more. Her work spans so many different things. They range from disability studies, medical technology, alternative medicines like traditional Chinese medicine and indigenous healing. She also spends a lot of time working on sexuality studies and the history of the body. Today, I wanted to get a chance to talk to her specifically about skin and the history of dermatology. I was able to sit down with her after our trip to the collections and basically ask her anything I could think of. Let's get into it. How are you doing? Good. It's great to see you. It was very lovely getting a chance to meet you earlier in the summer. Would you like to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about your role with the Smithsonian? Yeah. So my name is Catherine Ott. I am here in my office at the American History Museum, which is part of the Smithsonian. This is Piscataway unceded ancestral land. I am a grateful guest here and I know it. I am a curator, I'm a historian. My background is, I have a PhD in the history of medicine from Temple University in the great city of Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> And I've been, a, I've been a curator here for about 25, 26 years, something like that. That's incredible. I'm sure I'm curious about this and I'm sure everyone else is as well. Uh, what does day-to-day -day life look like for you? I'm happy to say there is no routine <laughs> and it's, it's kind of seasonal. It depends on, I teach a class once, once a year and then in the summertime, a lot of researchers and fellows come and they have questions about the collections. So I teach, I, I write things and publish, I collect, I cold call people and say, do you have it? Would you give it to us? Thank you. <laughs> um, I do research. I really love my job because it's always stimulating and I learn stuff every day. Yeah, for sure. It sounds really exciting when you talk about it. 
for a more of a fun question, what's something that you've curated that makes you laugh? Oh, <laughs> well, almost anything can make me laugh because it's <laughs> fun. But there, there are two objects that I think must speak to the inner adolescent boy in me. <laughs> One is in the political history collection here, we had some a 70-year-old birthday cake for President Franklin Roosevelt. So we put this dried up piece of birthday cake in the exhibition. And then, and then the other one is for the show I'm working on now. We have in the collection from the 1876 exposition, which was like a big world's fair. And the countries that brought their stuff didn't want to take it back. So the Smithsonian got 40 boxcars full of things from all over the world. And among those things, we got some uh, human feces. So we have 150-year-old human feces for a good reason, too. Traditional Chinese medicine has ingredients like making a brew of human feces and drinking it, which sounds kind of gross, but fecal transplant is a real thing. It's a treatment for people with different gut maladies. So, so anyway, so yeah, so yeah, those things make me laugh. Give me joy. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. That's really, yeah. <laughs> that's really something. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> I remember back in 2010, you published an article about skin and your work on skin and dermatology is just really exciting to me. So I wanted to ask a few questions about it. Skin, yeah, I, I am still really interested in skin and, and loving skin because skin has a history too. Skin is like just as much of an artifact in a way as a bottle of Coke or, or a coat or anything. And you can study it that way too. <laughs> the analogy to a Coke bottle is really funny <laughs> to me. <laughs> Dermatology is super visual, right? Skin is like the conduit for the spread of disease. And especially in the early 1900s, there were a lot of hygienic concerns because of industrialization. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the issues that preoccupied dermatologists in like the 20th century? Oh, yeah. Um, I want to take us back a little earlier than that, though, to most of what we know scientifically physiologically about skin is from the 1940s forward. It's post-war mostly when medicine really explodes with research and instruments and techniques and treatments and a whole range of things, imaging. But before that, how we understand skin has gone through this, these phases of, for, for centuries, and I'm talking European mostly because that's what I know most about, um, European and US, so skin was this this really loose sack that just kept your organs in. It was very porous, permeable. People didn't bathe because water would get inside you and it would bring evil spirits with you. Rather than bathing, people would occasionally change their clothes, which was equal to washing, but they didn't wash ever <laughs> um, because of the fear of it. It was dangerous to do that. And then slowly, that things shift and the mechanical role of skin becomes more interesting to people. This is like in the 
1600s, they start thinking of it as a membrane for waste elimination. So the idea is there's all this stuff happening inside your body that you can't see. So you do things to your skin to treat the things that are inside your body. And most of the diseases they were looking at were on the skin. The, th the common diseases were like smallpox, cholera, rashes, syphilis was the big one. And dermatology began with syphilis specialists. So the idea was to reach the things happening under the skin, inside the body, you would do stuff to the skin. The skin reflected your character, your inner being as well. So they would thread little um, tiny beans under the skin, like on the back of the neck, it was called a seton, S-E-T-O-N. They would thread it, they'd sometimes leave the thread in and it would cause an inflammation. They believed it was pulling stuff from deep within, the toxins or the poisons. Corporal punishment was the main way to punish people, like flogging and flaying is like the most extreme where they would just peel your skin off. And in school too, you would be punished with physical spanking. They would smack your skin or hit you with a ruler. That changes to psychological punishment, which is more what we have now, where you're like, no, 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 sit in the corner, you've been bad. <laughs> Skin is really fascinating because it reflects culture. You know, what are, the, what are the issues in a culture? Not only diseases, but what are the things that are scaring people? Pigment being a big one, pigmented people were very scary to white people. So, diagnosis is often connected to those cultural things that are happening. So many things to pick through with what you said. <laughs> yeah. Do you know anything about the process they use to like create treatments like that? Like spanking and the, the sewing of beads? Oh yeah, it's iterative. They think underneath the skin, there's stuff happening that you want to get to, but you have no way to get to it without killing somebody. So you do stuff on the external layer. So there's that, but then also things happen and it looks like it makes a difference. There were monthly meetings of doctors who would talk about what they had done or some new instrument and they would share information that way. Now there's the internet, but they used to just have parties and drink, not parties, but they would toast, sherry, you know, <laughs> and someone would give a paper about their latest treatment. A lot of it was, um, syphilis, which is a fun fact that people don't realize that dermatology began in the study of syphilis. From the early 1800s is when people start trying to categorize what's happening, but they're just looking at where it is on your body. For most of the 1800s, the big question was, is it or isn't it syphilis? <laughs> Would you be able to tell us a little bit about how different physicians approached diagnosing these skin conditions like syphilis? The first person that historians point to as getting involved in diagnosis or categorizing in a big way is this, this uh, guy in Paris named Ali Bear, um, who was very quirky, let's say. He had his own personal system, so it was hard to teach, at first it's location, and then it's um, texture, like is it wet or dry? And think how subjective that is, you know? who? 
I think it's wet. No, it's dry to me. Then it's where it's on the skin. And then they start trying to categorize about where it originates within what layer of the skin, how deep does it go. And then they start realizing that there are things that are happening in an organ that have a skin surface um, presentation. So that really starts to excite people and shock a lot of people that, oh, you mean it's not a, everything is not a skin disease, but there are many different experts. The Germans have one way of doing it. The um, American, the North Americans have another. There's the, the French and Alibert. Right. Since dermatology was so subjective, do you have like any comments to make about how these different perspectives are reconciled to work with all of these conflicting schools of thought and approaches to it? Doctors still, for most of the 1800s, can call themselves a doctor. They apprenticed often. Your family would send you to go live with a doctor and then you'd hang out with them and learn everything they know. And then you're a doctor at some point. You could go to school. Most people didn't. They would read, they would apprentice. And and so public health is the same way. And public health was mostly interested in dead animals in the street, safe water, and then epidemic diseases, which would come in waves, but not so much in the endemic, which is the diseases that are always there, the people with rashes and a wound that didn't heal or got infected. Because remember, they're not bathing still. People didn't, maybe once a year, maybe not. They changed their clothes, but if they had a change of clothes, (laughs) I know I'm kind of being dramatic or exaggerating, but people looked kind of pretty much like us, but they didn't experience the world at all the way we did, what they smelled like, their skin the texture of their clothing on their skin, because textiles were different. And if you don't bathe, and if you've got scabies, or if you have lice, or... And for, in the 1500s, 1600s, they thought lice came from inside you. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So that's really interesting. Is there any like dearth of information or lack of information in terms of people of color or anything like that? Oh yeah, sure. Partly because people of color, BIPOC and women weren't admitted to medical school. They were reluctant to go to a regular physician. They would go to someone in their family or someone in their neighborhood and get a a tea or an herb or something. They're more likely to self-diagnose and self-dose because they didn't trust. Also, they didn't have money to go to a doctor. So that means there's not a lot of information. There's anecdotal information. But, you know, on the one hand, like with objects, we have all these instruments and things in the collection and in our lives. When you're when you're gone, when your family, your grandparents, whatever, most of what they knew is gone. Most of what we know about their lives are gone or silent. So you you find a connection you can make and then build out from there. And so if you accept that everything has a story, then look for the story. And things are hidden. Like this is a wild um, comparison, but anything that was made of rubber before like 1915 or so, 
very, like tires on, on early cars or rubber implements, whatever, very likely it came from enslaved plantation labor in Asia or other places. But you wouldn't think about rubber unless you want that next level down. You know, like, where'd this rubber come from? Oh my God, enslaved people who probably died before they were 21 because they were working on a rubber plantation. So just because it's silent doesn't mean there's not, silence can be very rich, you know? I like that perspective too. It allows you to keep learning and exploring with pretty much everything, I think. As a historian, Catherine talks with people who have made an impact, to say the least. While working on a project, she spoke with a doctor who is a bit of a controversial figure. Controversy? How so? Let's start with the basics. His name was Dr. Albert Kligman. He was a dermatologist who passed away back in 2010 at the age of 93. He is well known for several things, but among them is A, developing Retin-A, which is a brand name for tretinoin. That's a common medication for acne and reducing wrinkles and visible sun damage. And B, being a textbook example of unethical experimentation. That's mainly for his work in the Holmesburg prison experiments. Hmm. Seems like there's a lot to learn here. My next question kind of thrusts us forward a lot towards like more modern dermatology. Okay. I wanted to talk about a very controversial figure, uh, Dr. Albert Kligman. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Tell me about him. <laughs> so I met him, I interviewed him, and he was he was pretty old, but lively when I met him. He lived in Philadelphia in this really amazing apartment on Rittenhouse Square. He was very complicated intellectually and emotionally. He was a huge Obama supporter at the time before the election. That's <laughs> when I was mm -hmm. talking to him and very liberal in his views, even radical in some ways. But yet he had this, he was a scientist and he was driven by that awkwardness of people and not connecting always the consequences of what you're studying or how you're interpreting things as having consequences on real people. So he was a dermatologist and when he was a young guy at University of Pennsylvania Hospital at the medical school there, he went to Holmesburg prison. And this has been the 50s 60s before any thought of informed consent. So he goes to Holmesburg prison and he looks at all of these prisoners and he said what he saw was acres of skin. <laughs> he, he didn't see humans, he saw acres of skin that he could experiment on. Um, and he did, of course, like these prisoners volunteered, but you're in prison. Like what kind of willpower do, choice do you have? So it's it's so many issues to unpack and racism, you know. So that's Kligman. He just an interesting guy. He was much younger, of course, when I went, and I was ready to to despise him, you know. <laughs> but talking to him, I I really got to understand the mind of a scientist, and a little more. I mean, I still have some issues with his ethics, but it's also the ethics of the time. And as a historian, 
my my job is to understand why people did what they did the context for it not to judge personally i judge everybody because i'm a very judgy <laughs> person but as a historian it's getting into someone else's mind into their skin and figuring out why how this could have happened do you happen to remember um what kind of tests they were doing on the prisoners and what he was learning from them? Oh, a whole patch tests, all kinds of things. They were putting things and then measuring the response or seeing if they responded. They He worked there for a few years and did a whole range of things. Some of them benefited many other people, but then, you know, yeah. We don't do that. In, well, in this country, we try not to do that, but Tuskegee was happening too about the same the syphilis experiments down there were happening about the same time. Well, moving on from a slightly more somber topic, <laughs> I wanted to take advantage of the fact that I literally have a Smithsonian curator in front of me that I can talk to. Yeah. Um, so to ask some of my burning questions, I wanted to ask, how do you decide what artifacts get featured in an exhibit versus left out? It, there's several answers to that. Um, sometimes it's just me deciding, but usually I talk to others. <laughs> usually. <laughs> usually, yeah, because that's the right thing to do. <laughs> um, but so if we're doing an exhibition and we know we need their gaps we need or their things that we, we don't have an example of, so we'll collect to fill in for an exhibition. Or if... A donor we've worked with or comes out of the blue and offers us a large collection of something that we don't have that's amazing, then we we discuss it. If it's really huge, there's a collections committee that we have to convince we have space. Another question is, can we be good stewards of it? There are resources involved in taking care of anything from cleaning it to housing it in climate controlled and all that. Even, you know, Lincoln's top hat, that it sits on a shelf untouched and the little beaver fur particles fall off it. So there are things that happen, you know, so can we take good care of something and how important is it? Um, if it's if it's connected to a person, if it's their lab book and they, it was part of some major thought process of discovery or innovation, that makes it more attractive because people will want to potentially study how this thing came about. Sometimes someone will just call, cold call or send an email and offer and then we see if we already have one. Does, it, does the one we have have good provenance? Is it in good condition? Do we want another one? Do we, is this a better one? So it's so many things to consider. I wanted to ask, since you're currently working on, out of many of your projects, one of your projects involves a history of medicine. Do you find some perspectives easier to find information on, like physicians versus patients, inventors versus adults and children. Oh, yeah. Um, I was just curious as how you're as how you're navigating that information. Yeah. It's like, so in some in some ways, we're like journalists that we interview people. We talk to people today who are part of things. We do oral histories and a fit, like formal oral histories. But we also interview like when I collect something. 
I talk to the person, so they tell me about it. But white doctors are a lot easier to find opinions of from. <laughs> so there's that. Part of it is being a good listener. It's that kind of, so who else is there? Who's Who can't I see, but I know is there? Like you look at an object, you may, the record may say who owned it, but then who made it? Who cut the wood that it was carved from? Not just the woodworker who might be famous, but who grew that wood? Whose land was it on? Whose land did it used, who used to be there, but was removed, you know, and who, what insects helped it or what? There's so many beings involved in everything that once you start working with material culture and thinking more broadly there, it's not just humans and it's not just the, the humans that left the best records. There's a lot more to ask. History of medicine is, is endlessly fun. <laughs> I love hearing you talk about all the layers of interconnecting lives and species and everything involved in like material culture. I think that's so, it's so nice. It's so interesting, almost hopeful and very collaborative in a way. All right. Um, is there anything we haven't talked about yet that you think is important for our listeners to know and you would like to share? One of the things that keeps me um, questioning and keeps me going is that, and I didn't make this question up, but I love it. And I ask myself and I, I ask my students and stuff, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? What kind of ancestor do I want to be? Yeah. So it's that, and, and there's no answer, no real answer. You have to live it, but it's that, why do you do what you do? And what kind of ancestor do you want to be? You know, it's like, cause you're shaping your life and your, your decisions and what you're doing have bigger cons consequences than just, I'm hungry, so I'm going to eat this now. So I'll leave you with that, <laughs> that question that is kind of philosophical. <laughs> No, yeah, I like having a whole existential moment where I'm trying to think of. <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. While I think about that, and while I hope everyone else is thinking about that, um, I wanted to thank you for joining me today and telling us so much. I feel like I've learned a lot from our conversation. Great. Yeah, well, I hope, and I hope it came across about how much fun it is to talk with you, how much I enjoy <laughs> you, and I'm really glad to have met you. This was great, and I really appreciate you asking me this stuff. Stuff I don't often think about or have to talk about. <laughs> no, I think you're the one who carried the conversation. I love hearing you talk. <laughs> I could probably do this for another hour and a half, but. Oh, yeah. I know. I mean, we could move on to blood because I do <laughs> even talk. We can move on to other body parts. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for another time. Thanks again to Dr. Catherine Ott, curator at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. Wow. What an interesting, amazing conversation. I'm curious, what did you learn about how history gets made? It was mostly a reminder that history is inherently subjective. Even while people try to relay everything as facts, history is really about people. And the interests of the person telling that history are inseparable from what they are trying to explore and memorialize in their work. 
I also have to ask, what was it like walking through the collections at the Smithsonian? Honestly, I think this whole experience only deepened my appreciation for curators. I'm genuinely in awe of the sheer volume of items that the Smithsonian has access to and they keep in storage. We really only see the tip of the iceberg in museums and I can't even begin to imagine what it's like to sort through that collection and choose what gets exhibited. And I think that curators like Dr. Ott have a really challenging but admirable task on giving these voices and experiences new light and attention that they definitely deserve. Amazing. And what else do you think young people like us need to know about museums and history? I think it's just important to keep going to them. A museum exhibit isn't just a simple retelling of history. It's, again, those voices of the curator guiding you through these haunting images of the past. And they're trying to tell you something important or even challenge something that you might take for granted. Storytelling is such an art, and these museums are are really phenomenal places to exhibit that art. For sure. And it also offers a more personal lens because it's not just about those triumphs, but it's also about day-to-day life. And that's it for us at the moment. So follow on Textbooks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, write us a review on your favorite podcasting app. We'd love to know what you think of Untextbooked. Drop us a comment about what you think. Learn more at untextbook.com. Sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, every week, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources designed for teachers and students. And for behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbooked. And that's all for this episode of Untextbooked. Thank you for listening. I'm producer Jenny Fan. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Untextbooked 